When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. The people I have on today, first of all, I'm fans of both in different realms of their lives. And they have now come together to create a fascinating podcast. Welcome Liz Lang and Ariel Levy from the podcast, The Just Enough Family. So before we get into the podcast, let's just break down how some of us know each other on here. Liz Lang was the first, you like super stylish maternity wear designer. And you and I met, and this is terrifying. My son is now 20. Same. We must have both been pregnant at the same time. And we did a story for E on your maternity line at your Beverly Hills store. And that is where you and I met and you were very generous and gave me a ton of clothes. And I then basically wore all Liz Lang all the way through my pregnancy and ready for this. I still managed to wear your turtlenecks up until about 10 years ago. And, but also it became part of like, that was the big thing. You passed down your maternity clothes, but your stuff was so beautiful. It was Gwyneth Paltrow, it was, I mean, who am I missing? You you dressed everybody. There was everybody. It was like Gwyneth and Kate Blanchett. I was always dressing Kelly Ripa. You, of course. Um, uh, Julianne Moore. Um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Catherine Zeta-Jones. I mean, it was so, it was almost crazy. I, I really was very lucky. And I dressed basically every celebrity who got pregnant. Cindy, all the models back then, like Cindy Crawford and Paulina Porskova, I mean, we're really dating ourselves, but yes. they were the models. Um, you know, uh, yes. Uh, Heidi Klum. Everybody. Uh, everybody. Julia you, yeah, you, you were one of the first ones to make maternity clothes that did not look like maternity clothes. That was the concept. Yeah. And by the way, and it was a very successful concept. I still to this year remember I had a sort of really pretty, light, almost light blue cashmere turtleneck that I lived in because I had a December baby. So, right. and I had my my favorite gray pants, which which and what I loved and no one cares was you had the choice of being over the bump or under the bump. That's you remember it so well. Oh my god, because <laughs> I do because I remember at the time you were the first one doing that, and Ariel Levy. You are an award-winning journalist. You have written for The New Yorker. You have written for everyone. You've had multiple books. I mean, I, you're- I'm a professional writer. Which- I, write, I, write, I write for a living. It's true. <laughs> oh, my God. And you are not completely crazy? I wouldn't say that, Melissa. <laughs> I wouldn't jump to conclusions, but this was my first podcast. This was the first time I did something uh, with my s- s- 
speaking voice and not my written voice. And it was I, really fun. I, I, I like how you chose your words very carefully <laughs> <laughs> on that one. That's so want, literally my job. Yeah, in choosing your words carefully. So I want to jump right into this because the podcast, The Just Enough Family, after all these years, Liz Lang, I did not know that you were a Steinberg. Right. So you probably went to, to Penn with my sister Jane. And I did. And Laura. Yes. Right. yes. And I yes. did not know. How did you guys meet? Through Jonathan Adler. Oh, oh. the designer. Yes, Jonathan and I met freshman year at Brown. I was the Steinberg that didn't go to Penn. So <laughs> there were not many. Of no, you. I was the lone one. And so Jonathan and I have been best friends. And I obviously I'll let Ari speak for herself, but they were very close friends. So Ari and I were always hearing about each other through Jonathan. And then I guess about 10, maybe 15, and we were dating ourselves now too, probably around a decade ago. He introduced us. We became very uh, close friends as well, both as a group and also just Ari and I. And yeah. on, a, on a side note, my desk that I'm sitting at right now is Jonathan Adler. Had I known, I would have asked for a discount. And he's in the podcast. He, right, he's in the podcast. mouth yammering oh. away in the podcast with ours. Yeah. Well, I only found out about this podcast a week ago. Oh. And I'm like, I have to talk to them. I have to talk to them. Um, for those who don't know, one of you needs to explain to the listeners who the Steinbergs are and what their power was in New York in the 80s. Um, should I say it, Ari? Should you say it? Probably. I mean, probably yeah, I this is my family. And then you could jump down. I'll just say quickly that the thing that's interesting, uh, Melissa, is that actually everyone associates it with the 80s, but it really started in the late 60s. I was born in 66, and by 1968, my uncle Saul Steinberg, which was, again, unusual back then, was the person in the United States under 30 was I'm trying to say who had made the most amount of money of anybody under the age of 30 in the United States. And he was at that point also only about 25 years old. My parents were similarly aged and was, uh, you know, one of the richest people in America. And again, he was 27, 28 uh, Jewish, which, you know, the three of us know as Jews today, everything is very assimilated and everything seems like this couldn't be true. But back in the 60s and 70s, unless you were a very fancy German Jew, um, this was not typical. The people with all the money were typically wasps. Yes, so especially coming out of Wall Street. And that was the, the where the family made their money. I mean, we all really I mean, for me anyway we all sort of, especially coming from Penn and Wharton and all that, we all knew Steinberg Dietrich Hall, but your uncle was really one of the first famous corporate raiders. He, before he was a corporate raider, he, he took his father's rubber business, which is just like, you know, a rubber business. They made rubber dolls terribly, according to Liz's father. He makes a big point of how bad these rubber dolls <laughs> And he takes this and then he starts an office equipment, this is before computers, an office equipment leasing business called LeaseGo. And it's huge. It's hard to imagine that that's such a huge thing, but it is. And he then based on, yeah. go ahead, Liz. Sorry, I was just saying, like, for instance, he took that public in the 60s way prior to even the concept of corporate rating. He wasn't a corporate rater mm -hmm. at all. He he was he had identified like any entrepreneur, sort of a hole in the market, did yeah. something with it, took it public, became an overnight 
sensation of a business person because right. he was so young and it was so new and so rich, um, uh, made the entire family extraordinarily rich with him. Uh, then uh, in the 70s, and then in the late 60s, tried to take over what was then Chemical Bank. That would be the equivalent of taking over J.P. Morgan Chase right. today. Uh, that didn't happen, frankly, because of anti-Semitism, like the world kind of shut down around him and some bad stuff happened. A law was literally passed specifically to change the way companies in New York could be could be bank the way to limit non-financial corporations from acquiring banks. And wow. It was, it was a law that was pretty blatantly directed at, at the Jews. At Charles Steinberg. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and, yeah, oh, definitely. Anyway, he went on to be a, you know, superstar investor in mm-hmm. the 80s, absolutely known as a corporate raider, but as we talked about in the podcast, kind of hilariously, kind of by accident. He was like trying to invest in companies, then he noticed that they became really afraid when he would invest and start saying, hey, hey, can we just sell you back this stock at a big price and say goodbye? And so he was like, wait, oh, okay. This and is kind of fun. Right, kind of went from there. And it was also my, you know, he was very social. He was always, again, these things meant much more back then, but, you know, page six, People Magazine. There wasn't a lot of difference between him and let's say a celebrity like your mom in terms of like what it meant to be that person's relative. Like, if that makes sense to you. Totally, like, totally. Yeah, what like it, what it made- me That what, was a celebrity. Yeah, what made you guys want to do this podcast? I mean, I'm fascinated- about that time in New York. I mean, there's been so many movies. We're talking about what Wall Street, Wolf of Wall Street, Bonfire of the Vanities, which when it came out, when Tom Wolf's book came out, everybody was shaking, trying to figure out who was whom, and then the movie that was made. I mean, you can go on and on and on. You know, there was such a fascination with that time. And I was very much on sort of the outside part of it because my mother did not move back to New York until we were thinking about it the other day, 89, 90. Um, and when she sort of got to know all these people, what was the fascination, you're talking about New York Post, people that everybody had on that, has with that time in the late 80s in New York and Wall Street? I do think in the case of Liz's family, it was representative of something that was going on. Liz was, you know, hinted at this a minute ago, that basically it was not German Jews. It was Jews from the wave of Russian and Polish immigrants. And they, they basically saw basically with the brute force of his intelligence and then the money that he made penetrated the highest echelon of wasp society, Park Avenue, Palm Beach, you name it. Like he, got in there. And I think it was a big deal. It was like, that was not common at the time. And I think what cemented society's fascination with him was his th- was when he married his third wife, Gayfred Steinberg. And the two of them were like an it couple. She was unbelievably famous. She was in every tabloid. She was, mm-hmm. everyone was obsessed with what she was wearing. I mean, Tina Brown put her in Vanity Fair with this fawning article. I think people were obsessed. Obsessed. Yeah, like exactly. I mean, but so Liz, growing up in this sort of very rarefied New York strata of society, which I think is what people are so fascinated by um, in all these other movies, there had to, and then seeing your family all over the tabloids, did you ever feel like, wait a minute, I want someone to stand up and tell the truth? 
Or did it just become white noise to you? Because that's something I know, it all became white noise. Totally, I never really, I mean, I guess when Ari approached me, I mean, I'm trying to think how to answer this. Yes, I, it absolutely all became white noise. It was the life I was born into, that's all I knew. I mean, I knew it wasn't 100% normal, of course, but I have in recent years, and maybe even then too, at times, been very frustrated because I feel like, like I feel like, for instance, in the case of my uncle, and this, 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 this podcast is is absolutely my story, and it's pretty intimate. But it also definitely is a bit of a love letter to my uncle, I think. And part of that is because I feel like what you read in the tabloids would be, let's say, for example, Saul Steinberg gives huge over the top party at Temple of Dendor for his daughter's twenty first birthday. Okay, that is true. What they never say is Saul Steinberg gave so much money to the museum, you know, to the Metropolitan Museum to, for the benefit of all, this, all the people who live and visit New York and get to go to that museum, desperately wanting to be on the board, no doubt, desperately, never accepted by that board. And because he funded that museum, yes, he, like many other donors, when the museum was closed on Mondays, were allowed to use it and right. they use it for private functions. And, and which, so, by the way, right? yeah. It's no, so you, frustrating. It's like- right. I, I get that where it's like, oh, you get it. But no one talks about that behind the scenes. What was it like growing up in New York in that time? Because New York in that late 80s, early 90s, which is really that sort of heady time, was off the charts crazy. I mean, we, we, we know all know about these parties that were insane where at midnight – you know, butterflies would drop from below. It was, and I, you know, I think fashion, I'm like, it was all uh, Christian Lacroix and big over the poof dress and the jewels and the heavy Chanel, big jewelry. I mean, it was such an iconic time in so many ways. What was it? Because I grew up in LA. So what was it like in the midst of all that? Well, I mean, New York was fun, but I will say this. And I, I grew up, I'm, I, am, I was born in 1966. So I'm a little bit older than you, but I, I don't think like crazy old. No, 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 not crazy old. I really grew up, by 1988, I had graduated from college, just, just to be clear. So my childhood in New York City was really the 70s and the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, by 1991, I was working at Vogue magazine as you know a 22-year-old out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started my business and Melissa like maternity in 97. So, right, but it was still that late. Yeah, but so I, it was that later childhood. You're still not necessarily, like you might be in college, but you're still living at home. Yeah, I mean, again, like it's hard to say because I, I maybe, I like I was, I was so in the middle of that 80s, uh, you know, excess thing that in fact, I know Ari mentioned Vanity Fair, but when I remember when Vanity Fair, po- uh, Vanity Fair used to be such an important magazine. It was so important. It was everything. And when Vanity Fair did its final, uh, uh, final, what's wrong? Not episode. What's the word? Uh, uh, issue. Issue. At the end of the 80s, it might have been, you know, at some point in 1989, I guess December, the, the, the headline said goodbye to all that. And the big picture was my aunt and uncle dancing with, you know, with with streamers coming down from the ceiling. You know, it was a great shot of the two of them just living it up. Mm-hmm. But that was the idea that they kind of, you know, embodied that. Like, I'm sorry. I was just saying that they epitomized the 80s. That Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, but the podcast you'll hear is really about what it was like to grow up. Like, yes, I was next to that. My uncle and my father were business partners, best friends. Our families were enmeshed. But I had a very sort of, um, I had a more traditional 
uh, family. Like I did not have those parties personally. My parents didn't throw those parties. Not, not, there's no judgment about them. It's just, so it was more about, well, I was always at them. They, this was my, you know, my very close cousins and uncle and aunts, but, but it wasn't really a hundred percent my life. It was more the idea, which again, I'm sure you can relate to that. I kind of knew people are probably now finding out. Oh, she knew. I knew that everywhere I went before I got there, people were whispering, do you know how rich Liz is? Or do you know that Liz's father is da 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 Liz's uncle. I, I totally knew that that was my tagline. I didn't acknowledge it, but I was completely aware that there, that there was just a lot of different, opinions and feelings about me, about my parents, about preconceived, my preconceived notions beyond. So if I was shy and I'm not saying, Oh, poor me, it's not poor me at all. I had a no. great life, but again, I, I can relate to you because I've read stuff about your story. Right. I think you've written part of it. So I, I know this, like, right. There was a lot going on that maybe wasn't so great. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was, yeah. it, was it was, it was a mixed bag. I was living a life like anybody else, but I understood that if I went to a party and I was shy, that it would be like, Oh, little Miss Snooty Pants. Or, oh, right, you, know, you, were, you couldn't just be shy or you can't be in a bad mood or you're just a bitch and a terrible person. It, exactly. So I understood all that. I mean, the parties, all of that, that wasn't, I was, I was not a hundred, that wasn't, you know, I was young. I wasn't, I wasn't really like my exact life, but yes, I was in the absolute epicenter of it. All my parents' friends were bold-faced uh, business names. I didn't know that that was unusual. I didn't know it was weird to be having Thanksgiving with Ronald Perlman and Carl Icahn. These were just family. I right. called Ronald Perlman Uncle Ronnie. That didn't feel strange to me. Right. And I, I completely understand that because that becomes the norm to you. Ariel, what, what made you want to take a deep dive on this? I mean, I find it fascinating. Well, two things. First of all, I mean, Liz and I always talked about telling her story at some point because it's just a fabulous story of of a rise and fall um, of a family. But also, I think what I like, the reason it's called the Just Enough Family is when Liz was a kid, she wanted to be a writer and she would tell little stories and she made up this story called the Just Enough Family. And it was this, stop me if I'm getting this wrong, Liz. I think I have it memorized. They, they weren't hurting, they could always get the next meal, but they had just enough. And I think it was like this fantasy that, that Liz had as a kid of like a slightly simpler life. So as much as, you know, when you were saying you had no judgment on those parties, that's a lie. You, you thought those parties were fabulous. Your judgment was, I live in the house of no. Why do my cousins live in the house? Yes, your judgment was, why did I get so unlucky that my parents are like normal and putting like restrictions on what we can have? So anyway, I think that on the one hand, you know, I think Liz was dazzled by the wealth around her and, and particularly by things at Saul's house where it was just over the top abundanza. But also she was aware of people hating them for this wealth and having preconceived notions and that there was all this tension in the family around it all. So this fantasy, this kid's fantasy of having this simple, just enough family, I just thought that was a great way into the story. We both did. We both thought that that idea and telling it through like child's eye view was just a way of getting an intimacy to the whole thing that keeps it from just being flashed. What what was the biggest difference between the two families? Oh, there were so many. I mean, um, my house was a very, my mother was very strict. 
So we had a ton of rules. Like we didn't eat between meals. We ate what was served for dinner, much more strict Mm -hmm. even than I am with my children. I mean, we, I dressed the way in the clothes that my mother bought for me. You know, I'm not saying none of this was hardship, but it was just like- By the way, I was raised the same way. We sat down for dinner, this, that, blah, 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 blah. Like your dinner, first of all, you ate it whether you liked it or not. And if you didn't like it, it wasn't like there was some Postmates or some chef making me something else. I mean, yes, we, you know, there there were people around who worked for us, but they didn't, my mother would have said, you know, they don't work for you. Like if I, if I left my room messy one day, came home from school, I would find the door closed and the room still messy. And if I was like, oh, mom, you know, how come the housekeeper didn't make my bed today? She'd be like, oh, it was too messy for me to let your housekeeper, the housekeeper go in there. That would just be outrageous. So, so Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm so trained that I straighten up hotel rooms before the housekeeping comes in because I don't want them to think I'm messy. Right. I mean, we joke on the podcast, but I don't mean it. I adore my mother and she was a great mother. But my sister and I have a joke that when we saw the movie Mommy Dearest, we were like, yeah, I mean, who's allowed to have wire hangers? I mean, you're not allowed to have wire hangers. Like that's animals. Um, right, animals. Like, yeah, we're like, well, you know, of course not. But then at my uncle's house, it was kind of a free for all. Like, I mean, again, uh, you know, you go over there and there were a lot of people working there who would make, if you, like at my cousins, you would just call downstairs and you'd say what you wanted for breakfast or lunch. Maybe it'd be pizza, maybe bagels, whatever. And it would just come up for you. And I thought this was, this was living. Like, I didn't feel like there were any rules at all. And my cousins would say the same. They always say, oh, well, they were envious of my house because they wanted the structure and the rules. So it just felt to me, though, going there, which I went often after school, we actually lived across the street from each other. It just felt going there was like going to like Kitty Paradise. Like, oh, yeah. And they moved everywhere together. That's the other thing. They were like this sort of like wealthy shtetl of people on Long Island. (laughs) And then the whole thing picked up and moved to Park Avenue. Like, it was was like a tribe. Yeah, which is also shocking to all the... Uh, Park Avenue society doyens to have these crazy Jews move in. Back then, most buildings, and I remember this distinctly, like my parents might be talking, they'd say, oh, we'd love to buy such and such apartment. And I might say, I can't remember, so I'd like, oh, why not? They'd be like, oh, we could never move to that building. That would never happen. And I'm like, really? And oh, yeah, that- the, you wouldn't get past the board. Never. Ever. And that was the way it was for most buildings on Park and Fifth. Um, and then even when we moved, my parents early uh, built a house on Lily Pond Lane in East Hampton. And the, our neighbors on either side moved. They moved because it was wow. their neighborhood. And, wow. Yes. And I mean, these are nice people. I'm just saying, like, you know, like it was, <laughs> it was, it, we were very, and I didn't, I didn't fully I, I said this on the podcast, like there was part of us, like we didn't fully care. We were, a li- I think a lot of Jews, it's a very Jewish story, this podcast. I think a lot of us felt a little bit like both inferior and superior at the same time. Like if I were to say any of this to my parents back then, they'd say, yeah, they're all just jealous of us. Just jealous. Those yeah. Bosses, they just don't know what to do because none of them have worked in so many generations that, you know, they, yeah. you know, it was, it was, it was a little bit, but, but yet on the other hand, we knew that we weren't really, really welcome in you were allowed to look through the window, but not into the party. Definitely. So the rise we all sort of know about and, and the, the opulence and your aunt being a big member of society and jet set. And there was a whole, a whole tribe of them. Um, when things crashed, they crashed fast and hard. Yes. What is your first memory of that things were not going well? Well, it all happened for me. It felt very overnight. 
um, because I was I was already I was 32 years old. I was married. I was living in a large apartment with my husband, my two children, honestly, like three people and help um, that my father had bought, you know, had bought for us as a way right. that, again, just seemed absolutely normal. Correct. And I in fact, I like this apartment a lot at the time. But I think I recall that I was thinking of it, that I would probably be moving into something even bigger. You thought of it as your starter. Starter apartment, which sounds disgusting now, but that is what was, if I'm being honest, that was what was in my head. Right. Well, I started to notice, I used to send a lot of my bills to my father's office and his then secretary would pay them. And I started to notice that some bills weren't getting paid. I was getting like phone calls from different service providers. So I called my dad's secretary and said, you know, how come, I don't know what, how come my American Express bill hasn't been paid yet? And she said, oh, I'm going to pay it. I just, I wanted to pay this other bill first. And I was thinking like, why would we be paying them in some kind of weird sequence? I was kind of like, well, just, you know, I don't know, pay them all at once. Like, what, what's the problem? Like, we're, you know, and then I think the big moment came when I'm home at this apartment one day and there's a knock on the door. And I, I swear, I didn't even know this word at the time, but looking back, it was what we would call a repo man. And he was there to repossess my car. And what? I, yes, I had a car in a garage nearby that my father obviously hadn't been making the payments on, but this was unbeknownst to me. Um, so, you know, I think that was the beginning of like, what is going on here? Um, you know, there was just, and then it just all kind of crumbled so quickly and like almost like the way in Princess Bride where you keep saying it's inconceivable. Then someone says, I'm not sure you know the definition of the word, but clearly it wasn't, it was quite conceivable because it was absolutely happening. I mean, we know that Saul uh, became ill and passed away. Um, where's everyone now? I mean, I, I, if I remember correctly, if I'm wrong, there was even a moment where someone had a second secret family, which by the way, seemed to be like the thing to have in the late eighties. I know three people with this story. Do you really? Yes. I know one story again, I won't use the name where not only was there a second family, there was a third family, but the second family also lived in New York and went and the kids were almost all the same age, but went to different schools. Wow. These people really, these men, they live on the edge. Yes. Um, And then there was a third family in another state. Who is that kind of time? I don't, how do these, how do these people do this? I could barely have one family. Exactly. um, I mean, but um, yes, it was actually my father. Um, So that was a, that happened before the loss of the money. But yes, this crazy thing where first my parents are getting divorced, which they tell us at my sister's graduation from Penn weekend. Okay. Awesome yeah. timing. Yeah, awesome timing. We were, we, I mean, we laugh about it today. Awesome timing. It was like worst weekend. I think of my sister's life. And like, why mother, would they do that then? I don't know. They're crazy. My mother was like in my sister's hotel room crying to her about my father. She's like, I'm just trying to graduate mom. <laughs> so, yeah, whatever. so um, but I, you know, I don't quite know, but it was, it was funny. And then, um, and then very soon thereafter, my father told us in like some crazy moment that he'd actually just met someone. She seems terrific. She's got three daughters around our age. And in fact, he likes her so much that even though we have our house in East Hampton, he's going to rent a house in Southampton and they're just going to live there for the summer. And I remember that point, my sister and I were both kind of like, well, dad, nobody meets someone and then moves in with them. And slowly it kind of all came to light. Um, uh, that was weird. Um, I, yeah. Question was, but that was like a really like there were just so many things happening where like my perception, my sort of unshakable perception of my family, of my life, of so many different aspects of it were just completely being turned on their heads. Everything that I thought 
was my life and my family and just things like just facts, certain facts that were just, you know, immutable facts started to change overnight. And where is everyone now? You know, everyone is good now, I would say. And that was one of the things that was really touching to me about the podcast was kind of just hearing different people's voices and realizing, you know, uh, there's just people are in good places. In my generation, we've all, you know, many of us are successful in our own right. Um, things have just kind of worked out. There are a lot, there's a lot of different closenesses in my family. First, everyone fell apart as often happens when money goes bad. Uh, things got very ugly. Where, how so? I mean, of course things get ugly, but what? Well, they get very ugly. Like my grandmother sued my father and my uncle who were her sons. Um, they stopped speaking. Obviously it was all very, very public here in New York city. Um, uh, you know, just the family was fracturing. Nobody was talking to anybody. Um, but, and my uncle had had this stroke that you alluded yes. to, and that was really horrible for the family. Cause he was really, you know, obviously the patriarch. Um, and, um, uh, just, you know, my parents were divorced. People weren't speaking. I wasn't speaking anymore to my grandmother who had sued my father. You know, everything was just kind of crazy, but you know how life is like, it all sounds horrible, but like, yeah, we kind of, I don't know. We kind of like, we survived it. Many of us are close again. My grandmother is no longer alive, so I'm not close to her. But, you know, I'm, I, I have a very good relationship with the rest of my family. And um, people, I think, are generally happy and good. Which is great. Ariel, how, as an, a friend but still not a family member, do you, how often do you get surprised when Liz shares something and you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea or I didn't know that? What's the craziest thing you've learned Every time we sat down to record the podcast, she would tell me something that blew my mind. You know, I mean, it blew my mind when she casually threw in that her father had had this, you know, second family and this whole thing for 10 years. That was, I, that was a jaw dropper. Um, it was, you know, it, it blew my mind how much, I think this is actually what we sort of started talking about was how many things fell apart for Liz at once. It was like perestroika is what she calls it. Yes. Cancer, her family's losing their money. The family stops speaking to each other. Her, she finds out her dad has this whole other life. I mean, it was a lot at once of just collapse. That was shocking to me how much went wrong at once. Um, and it, I, it, it surprises and impresses me how honest every member of the family is. That's what I think people like about the podcast is that every person I spoke to, every Steinberg is, has like a genetic gift for storytelling and for frankness. Which, which is amazing. Which yes, is cool. amazing that there's no one out there trying to, to candy coat what went on. You're not front. Yeah. <laughs> did, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember this. Is Gayford's... Did Gayford pass or is she no, still she's alive? She's well and she's in the podcast. And she's great. She's my mother's closest friend. Even Which, though- by the way, is phenomenal. I mean, Gay- for people who don't know, Gayford was Saul's wife number three, a huge society doyen, anointed by Anna Wintour and Tina Brown and all the international best dress lists and a tremendous society hostess that I remember everybody running off the ship, you know, like rats, the second things went south. 
Uh, she had friends that stayed loyal to her. She really yeah. did. And what's amazing is my she stayed very, very loyal to my mother after my parents divorced because that wasn't easy. No. My father and my uncle were very, very close. And, you know, the loyalty would have been to my father. But Gay Fred really refused to give up the friendship with my mother. And they are best friends. And Gay Fred, and again, you'll hear this in the podcast. Yes, everything you said is exactly the way the world saw her. And one of the things that I'm most pleased about in this podcast is forget how I feel about her. I, 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 I have enormous amount of respect for her. But that would be a little bit meaningless. When you hear her speak. And when you hear her tell her story, I think it's impossible not to think like, wow, I didn't know really anything about this woman at all. Do, do you agree with that, Ari? Like 1,000%. I mean, she's a small town girl from Canada, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like she's, she's from humble beginnings and she had her own, she had a steel pipe fitting business. She lived in Southern Africa. Like she's a fascinating person. And yeah, this wasn't just smart. some woman that the Steinbergs lifted from nowhere. No, no, no. My no. mother always really liked her and was always amazed at how smart she was. That's exactly smart. right. People who didn't know her, your mom obviously did, are discovering that through this podcast. So she, smart. So smart, so funny, so mm -hmm. kind. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, people are very, and again, I'm not like, I hate, I mean, it's not, no one's perfect. She's not, she's not a saint. None of us are. No, but, she, but she the public human being. No, she took a heaping load of abuse in this, the society press and page six and tabloids and, and all of that. Yeah. I'm glad. So I want to skip ahead because I also find this fascinating. Why did you, I cannot imagine what it has taken to remodel Grey Gardens. And for people who don't know, there's an amazing documentary about a, a home called Grey Gardens. And tell, well, tell, one of you tell the story of Grey Gardens and you've got to see the documentary. And then I want to get into what possessed you to take on this project. Um. Well, Grey Gardens, as well documented, was the home that Jackie Kennedy's uh, first cousin and aunt lived in together. Um, they uh, they uh, they bought it when when uh, they were a wealthy family because Jackie was from a wealthy family and it was their summer cottage and they belonged to Maidstone, a very exclusive club on Long Island, which we Jews could never belong to. Nope. And nope. they were living a very grand life and it was a very beautiful house. Uh, the house, uh, the, the, the family falls apart, kind of like mine. And the mother and daughter end up living there and they end up obviously kind of going crazy. And they live there in a house that really, to say that it should be condemned would be the understatement of the year. Uh, it is disgusting. There are rats and, and rodents everywhere and cats and raccoons. They eat cat food. They live in one room because everything is destroyed. It is filthy. Um, and um, uh, that's kind of the, the, the documentary um, portrays that. And they are very, very frank and very open with these documentary filmmakers, the Maisel Brothers. Who yes, and it's also been a musical it was on Broadway. <laughs> and it was remade as an HBO movie with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange portraying yes. mother and daughter. And I think the world was fascinated also because they were literally first cousins and aunt of the most glamorous people right. in the world. Uh, you know, the, the Bouviers, Jackie Lee, her, her glamorous sister, Jackie's glamorous sister, um, to the point where little Edie, it's big Edie and little Edie are the mother and daughter. Little Edie had also dated, uh, uh, 
President Kennedy and was possibly going to marry him. She was very, very beautiful. And then you see her living in squalor is is not the right word. Squalor. No, it was you have to you have to see it to believe it. Right. Would you say so, Ari? Is that the that's I think the- that yeah. And I think what the what was cool about reporting the podcast at Grey Gardens, which Liz has turned it, I mean, it just couldn't be more glamorous and fun and you know, blue leopard print wallpaper. Well, like, what psycho says, oh, I can, I can remake, I can, a small project. I'm going to redo Grey Gardens. Well, I love home projects. <laughs> like you're not <laughs> so, like, normal. Yes, yeah. yes, you have to. I'm not normal. <laughs> and also my, I, it was bought, it was bought by Sally Quinn and Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley famously was the editor of the Washington Post and his somewhat social and also uh, author wife, Sally yes. Quinn. Uh, they, we rented it from them one summer, like five, like maybe five or six years ago. We rented it from them. I loved the house. Again, because I had grown up, as I mentioned, going to this house on Lily Pond Lane in East Hampton, this, Greg Arms was around the corner. It looked like all the houses that I remember when I was growing up in East Hampton. They don't look like that anymore, but it was no. these rambling shingled cottages owned by Wasp family. So while our house was this Charles Guathme designed modern, you know, glass, state-of-the-art systems, like, you know, the, the doors practically right. sealed behind you and the air conditioning blasted on and our pool was broiling hot and all of that. You know, the wasps were the opposite. Their pool was hot. Their, you know, their pool was cold. Their houses were hot. hot yeah. were smoke everywhere, screen doors, who needs air conditioning, blah, blah, blah. So this house reminded me of that. And I've always loved, I actually have always loved those East Hampton houses. I mean, yes, I'm a, you know, a Jap at heart. So we needed to renovate it so that it, you know, did have air conditioning. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so, um, but I, I, actually think the house itself irrespective of the documentary it's you know it's a house that is two minutes from you know really basically on the edge of georgica beach it's on a beautiful road it is a gorgeous house with gorgeous gardens and sally and ben had had done a a, a renovation i mean it had been 30 years since they'd done the renovation so we needed to do another one but i wasn't exactly buying the house while it was in shambles right so i mean we didn't did have to remove the raccoons i didn't yes. have to do that no, I'm told, right. No, you didn't. Uh, you didn't have to remove. That's a bonus. Yeah, that's a bonus. That was good. So, no, so I was buying a house that needed a lot of work in my mind, but I wasn't buying a house where the floors were falling in, and it wasn't like that at all. It was a perfectly, you know, livable house well, that in my mind needed a really good renovation. They, thank goodness, you hadn't really gone down the real crazy rabbit hole of I like my mother when she bought her apartment in New York. There was a bird flying around on the inside. It was two-story ceilings. It was the old ballroom, and there was a hole somewhere. And when she went to look at it, there was a bird inside. And she said, hmm, I can do this. So, you know, you creative types are all little. You get it. I'm like that. I was kind of like, yeah, this is fun. Um, I want to jump in. And, and, I mean, Ariel, I'm such a – I'm a fan of your writing. Um, Thanks. I noticed that you are – both, you know, you're both strong women. Ariel, you've written a lot about feminism and being strong and being yourself. And Liz, you've been sort of a ma- you were very much a maverick, especially in the fashion industry. Yet, and Ariel, I don't know if this applies to you too. Liz, you, your family has been touched by mental illness. Yes. And uh- I am a uh, advocate. I'm on the board of D.D. Hirsch Mental Health Services and Suicide Prevention because my family has experienced suicide. And Ariel, how much were you, because you guys have known to, aware, and it, Liz, if I believe it's your husband, your, it was your husband. Oh, I mean, now it was my ex slash late husband, yes. Right. 
How much were you aware of what was going on behind the scenes? Not that there could be any more in Liz's life when she was grappling with a loved one having mental illness when it was still something you couldn't talk openly about? By the time Liz and I were close, uh, Liz and Jeff were divorced. So I only ever met him once. He seemed, you know, like everyone else thought he was just handsome and great. I mean, I had no idea he was suffering. Um, and yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know him, but I have been very well aware of the, the pain that has come out of his death. Right. So Liz, what about you? I mean, you, you were grappling with this as was I, as was my dad's suicide, which was 87 before you could talk about any of these things. Yeah. Yours was earlier. So, uh, you know, Jeff, um, Jeff uh, died, uh, you know, by suicide in, um, I want to say now it's been four years. So not, you know, so, so, but it, there's something about suicide where it's still not, so, I mean, yes, we read more about it, but it still feels, don't you think like, like a hard thing? It, it, it just, it's hard. So I want to talk about Liz, you have a new fashion line and I was, I love Ariel's like, yes, yes, yes. That I've already been on the website. Oh, Yay. It's amazing. Uh, How did this come to be? And what is behind you on that sign? Oh, you know, I'm sitting in my apartment in New York and I, it says chrysanthemum. It's just uh, it's a piece of art, but like, I just, I don't know why Saturday I thought the light would be good. No, it's um, good. Well, it's good. I didn't just want to make sure we weren't missing if you were promoting something. No, I'm not promoting it. Thank you so much. I love Chrysanthemum. I'm not promoting that. No, but uh, my new line is Fig, which is sort of the French spelling, F-I-G-U-E. And really what it is, is I've been missing being ever since I sold Liz Lang maternity to private equity in 2007. I've done other things, but I really missed having my own brand, but I didn't want to start one from scratch. I understood what that takes and I'm glad I did it when I was young, but I couldn't do it again, knowing everything I know now. So I'd been a fan of Fig. Fig is a brand that I had been wearing since its inception 10 years ago. It was started by this woman who was the head designer for Tory Burch and she went off on her own and it's these fabulous caftans and great dresses. And we're actually expanding into a lot more than that separates and knits too. But um, I loved it. And when I heard that it was going, that Stephanie, the founder, was kind of done during COVID, just couldn't take it anymore, and that she was going to close down the brand, it felt like almost like meant to be, like Bashir. Like, I ha- oh, wait, you know, I love the brand. It has an existing team in place, which was something I was looking for. Um, it, um, uh, you know, that I, I did, this is the perfect opportunity. So I ended up acquiring the brand. And it's kind of the way I felt. When I started doing Liz Lang maternity, that's where I was in my life. I, I was getting pregnant. My friends were pregnant. That's why our children are the same age because right. we're kind of the same age. Yeah. But now I feel like, you know, I'm in my 50s. I've kind of, I mean, joking around, I've kind of entered my caftan years. Like, I don't, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I no longer kind of, you know, run around on like six inch heels and little mini tight dresses. And I had those days and they were great. But like, the, you know, so now, you know, I. Now I, your well, feet hurt. My feet hurt. I want to look glamorous but I kind of want to be comfy too. I don't, I, you know, the skin tight stuff for my 20 year old daughter and my 22 year old son's girlfriends, but not for me. Um, and so it really, it's, it's it big as a brand that I wear and that my friends wear. So it just, it feels very natural to me. Like I understand the brand because I, you know, I'm the customer cause I am the customer. So, you told me once before you bought it, I remember you said to me, Fig is the gold standard of caftans. <laughs> I, and I was not surprised when you bought it. And I think an interesting thing is it's like the opposite. It's like the opposite of her last friend, right? Like Liz yeah. Lang's eternity was if you're pregnant, you can wear tight 
stretchy things. You don't have to yep. be a billowy thing. Fig now is like, you can be as skinny as a rail, but wouldn't it be comfy to be in a flowing, glamorous caftan, just like with your body free? See, and this is why I love interviewing people who work together, but who are friends, because <laughs> the insights from both of you on the other are always the best. But it's true. You were the one who said, you don't have to be in a caftan while you're pregnant. Here, put on a cute pair of pants. And they might be bigger in the middle, but the legs are still skinny. That was my mantra. And it's not that I think that women have to hide the caftan. I think these caftans and these dresses are very sexy. And some of them are short. Oh, they're long. It's not that they're not sexy. It's just they're not. There's so many different ways to be sexy. Um, But it's also got that whole sort of vacation-y, jet set-y vibe that someone could say, where'd you get that? And you would say, mm, Ibiza. Like, it's got, like, that sort of inherent snob appeal, not like, hi, I bought it online. Oh, it looks like you just got back from St. Bart's and you discovered this little shop in the, like, little boutique hotel. Um, yeah, no, it's very, very sort of jet set meets jet set, um, you know, glamorous. Uh, I don't know. Yes. Glamour without constriction. Yes. I find them extraordinarily glamorous. Like I always feel very, very chic. I wear them from everywhere from like beach cover up, honestly, to like a black tie wedding or bar mitzvah. Like that's sort of the way I treat them. So I was very excited actually to have the opportunity to buy my favorite brand. It felt a little bit like pinch me. This is too good to be true. I love that. I've already got stuff in my cart. Um, Hmm. Ariel, what have you learned about Liz through this process that you didn't know before? Or what insight have you gleaned? I mean, I think it made us closer. I mean, I think we realized certain things that we had in common that we hadn't really thought about or talked about. I think, you know, we both grew up in houses where there was a certain amount of lying and secrets. And we sort of figured out that it primed us for what came next. And we, we hadn't, I don't think we'd put our fingers on it quite like that before we did this, right, Liz? Absolutely, I always inherently felt that even though if one looked at us from the exterior, they might think we didn't have a lot in common, but we understood that yeah. we did have things in common, but I'm not sure we could have put our fingers on it before. How, do you, how are you raising your children differently in the sense of not a lot of lies, not a lot of secrecy? And to understand the impact that your family had and has on different parts of business. You know, it's, 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 it's an illustrious history. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, of course, I talk, I've been talking to my kids most of their life about sort of my family and, you know, they, they make fun of me. They're, you know, they're, they're only semi-interested. I mean, you know how kids are. Um, Not interested uh, at all. Not at all. It's like, Not oh, all. right, mom, you lived a fancy life, you know, whatever. Yeah. I but um, oh, my son's favorite new thing is I'm like, I'm redoing a closet and he just rolls out and goes, you don't need that. I'm like, honey, you don't know what I need. Oh, <laughs> my say. can tell that I've quote unquote given up on myself. I mean, they're yeah. mean, but, but <laughs> like, you don't that's need fine. that. I'm like, you don't get to decide what I, you don't need so many shoes. And I'm like, go away. None okay. of your business. Exactly. Um, you know, and I, I don't, I, I feel like there was, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely my children were raised very differently than I was raised. I, I don't know that I would say, like, definitely there were secrets. Definitely there were lies. But my children will probably say one day they'll be telling some therapist that there were secrets and there were lies. I mean, for sure. Uh, but, you know, I try to be open with them. I think I'm a lot less strict. And I'm not even sure that's positive 
Like it's sometimes, I mean, my husband and I, my current husband, I have a joke. My mother's name is Kathy. And we often, when we're doing stuff, we are trying to figure out what to do about one of our kids, one of my children. We'll say, what would Kathy do? Like, she was kind of good. Like she was just, she didn't tolerate. That's funny. I think what would Joan do and then do the opposite? Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do the opposite because I'm not my mother, but I really respect it. Like, I mean, you know, the things my children say to me, let me just say, I would not have said to my mother. I mean, oh, um, can you imagine? No, no, <laughs> never, 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 never. My son and I just had this discussion over and I'm pretty strict, right. but I was asking him to help me do something. And he's like, you can do it. And I'm like, excuse me. And I finally, it was like plugging, trying to get something into a plug and I couldn't reach and blah. And it turned into like a whole thing. I'm like, you don't understand. In my house, if I had said that, I would not have teeth left. I was like, wouldn't be alive to tell you the story. Right, exactly. You wouldn't exist, I guess. There was an <laughs> expectation of these things. And by the way, he understood that that was his one and only time to try and say that to me. And he was 20. I'm like, ooh, 21, even though it's going to be in December, is looking real far away for you right now. <laughs> no, well, that's great. So, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm a def- it's a very different time. I'm a very different parent. Uh, uh, but I, I, as I said, like, on the one hand, I lived with so much. Like, we had so much. But my parents were strict. So I actually tell my children I mean it. I think they have more access to money and capital and things. Like, my mother famously, like, when I when I went to school in the morning, she would stick her head out the window from the ninth floor of our Fifth Avenue apartment building. And if she saw me hailing a taxi or saw me with the doorman, she would scream downstairs, no taxis. Like, you know, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> so, like, not, again, not a hardship. But, you know, I took the public bus to school. I don't think my children know what a public bus is. I don't right. think they have a bus pass. I mean, you know, like, so, so it's just so different. Well, you guys are amazing. Everyone needs to listen to the Just Enough family. It's such a fascinating slice of of culture that you guys have tapped into. And I am recommending it to everybody. Thanks, Thanks so much. Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. So good to see you. Yeah.